If you have your Bible with you, would you turn with us please to the book of Ephesians, the sixth chapter. To all who have a part in the music ministry of Wake Chapel Church, we thank you. Choir, we don't take y'all for granted. Musicians, same thing. We don't take you for granted at all. Thank you very much. Your practice and then you're coming to share with us in worship. They lead us in worship, and we are grateful to God for them. I would like to read two verses now, and uh, then I'll take up the rest of them in verse uh, chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. I'd like to read uh, 10, 11, and 12 now, and then we'll tell you why we're doing that and, and take care of the other verses just in a few moments. Let's pray together. After we read, we'll... Uh, commit this to, to the Lord. You follow along. Let me read. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. Just a note before we read uh, further and, and look at the text. In your worship folder this morning, there is an article uh, that I would encourage you very strongly to read. Last Sunday evening, uh, our deacons met, and uh, we have 12 men on the board of deacons, and we meet once a month. Each month, one of our deacons has a devotional prior to our meeting. And uh, last Sunday evening, Tom Lowell had our devotional. And I called Tom on Monday and said, Tom, would you uh, repeat at least the gist of your comments to us at deacons meeting? It was about an unseen battle. And all of us are in it. You may not see it. You may, about, you may read about wars all over the world, and we do, but there is an unseen battle that is going on that beggars all the rest. All the rest of them are not worthy to be compared to this one great battle that all of us are involved in. And so I would encourage you to read Tom's article. It's excellent. It's excellent. Tom, thank you so much for your thoughtfulness and sharing that with the board of deacons first and then writing so that the church family could share that. Pray with me, please. Father, because we've been together in your house today, we pray that we might be more like Jesus. I pray that our minds will not wander to think about where am I going to eat lunch or what do I have to do the rest of the afternoon or what happened yesterday or what do I have before me in the week to come. Help us not to to, to wonder about those things. Help us, O Lord, to focus our attention upon eternal truths. And may God the Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may we be more like Jesus. Because we've opened the Word of God, we've prayed, we've given our gifts, we've sung our hymns of praise, and we've listened to the Word of God this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. 
Whether we think so or not, and most of the time I'm afraid that we don't think so, but fundamentally the problems that we face today are not intellectual problems. They are not social problems. They are not material problems. They are not problems primarily of how people are getting along around this world. Our problems are fundamentally spiritual problems. The nature, the core of the problems that we face today, it's spiritual. We are in a spiritual warfare. And that's why I titled my message this morning, Armor for an Unseen Battle. We don't see it. We don't see soldiers up and down the streets with weapons. Thank God for that. But we are in a greater battle, and we need God's armor to help us in this battle. A Christian, like the one described in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, who lives a faithful life like that described in chapter 4, chapter 5, and the first part of chapter 6, can be sure that he is involved in the spiritual warfare that is described in chapter 6, verses 10 through 17 or 18. And this is warfare on a grand scale. For you see, when God begins to bless, Satan begins to attack. And with blessings increasing, the intensity of the attack from Satan increases. Think about the Lord Jesus for a moment. When his ministry began, it began with a great battle between the Lord Jesus and Satan. And you recall, it lasted 40 days. That's described for us in Matthew chapter 4. As Jesus' earthly ministry came to a conclusion, Satan besieged him again, this time in the Garden of Gethsemane, with such force, and I read this again just before the service started, with such force that Jesus sweat, as it were, drops of blood. Among the many other truths that these two accounts in, in, in the Word of God teach us, three things come to my mind. First of all, the battle may not become easier as we grow in obedience. The battle may not become easier as we grow in obedience. In fact, if anything, Satan will intensify his efforts against those who continue to be faithful and serve the Lord. A second thing, and it follows naturally on the first, as believers grow stronger, so will the attacks of Satan. In your walk with the Lord, hopefully you are doing those things which make you a stronger Christian. As you do that, Satan will increase his attacks. And the third truth that seems to me to come out of these two passages of Scripture uh, regarding our Lord's temptation, as the Lord gives mastery over certain temptations that we face in life, Satan will simply attack elsewhere. He will simply attack elsewhere. The intensity of this warfare is compounded by several things. First of all, it is 
compounded, it is intensified because of the identity of our enemy. In verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 6, he is referred to as the devil. The last word in verse 11, the devil. He is not just a force or an influence. More and more seminaries and pulpits today are talking about the Satan as a force and ignoring the fact that he is not just a force. He is a very real person. Our adversary is real. Now, the Bible uses a number of names, personal names, and descriptions to teach us that. Let me mention just a few. In John 16, he's called the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4, he's called the God of this world. In Ephesians chapter 2, he is referred to as the prince of the power of the air. That's not a vague, nebulous force. That's a person. That's an individual. He is also identified as the great dragon, as the roaring lion, as the tempter, as the accuser, the spirit working in the sons of disobedience. Fifty-two times in the Bible he is called Satan. The word means adversary. Folks, it's just as plain as it can be if we will but look and listen. We have an adversary. The Bible calls him that 52 times. More than that, 35 times he's called the devil, which means slanderer. He and his forces are evil. They are cunning. They are well organized. And they are invisible. Is more intense because of those things. The battle is also more intense because he is well organized. He operates a highly efficient, well organized, well oiled effort. Look at chapter 6, verse 12 for a moment. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is against the rulers, against the powers, against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. Do you see the organization there? This is not some hit or miss organization uh, or effort by our enemy. Third thing which highlights the intensity of this struggle is in verse 12. Uh, We wrestle... And that's the old King James word. Uh, The New American Standard, which I'm reading from, says struggle, for we struggle. But the old word is wrestle. That is face-to-face combat, my friends. Face-to-face combat. Is there help for us? Is there help for a Christian? With all of this, is there help? And if so, what is it? Well, the answer is yes. And Paul answers those questions and talks to us about help that is available. Actually, Paul's thoughts are divided in two parts, in verses 10 and 11, and we've read those verses. But did you catch verse 10? Be strong in the Lord. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Two things the apostle says. 
Be strong in the Lord, put on the whole armor of God. And then in verses 13 and following, which we'll take up in a couple of moments, uh, we are told what this armor is all about, what it is. But look at this again, if you would. In verse 10, I, I, I need to share just a little bit of background here with you, okay? I know that there's not anybody within the sound of my voice, except maybe David Brown, that cares one whit about the original text, okay? Uh, most Christians that I know, if I say the Greek says, they reply to me, the only Greek I know is, is, is the little guy that runs the coffee shop down the street. Uh, I understand that, okay? I understand that. But I've got to share at least two thoughts with you here. In verse 11, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. But in verse 10... You'll notice he says, be strong in the Lord. And then he says, put on the whole armor of God. Two things here. In verse 10, the original language indicates that the individual, the Christian, is acted upon by an outside force. He's acted upon by an outside force. The verb form that's used here is passive. Uh, So... The individual does nothing. He is acted upon by an outside source. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be stand. Well, I'm going to read verse 11 first, no matter what I do here. Forgive me. Verse 10, be strong in the Lord. It is the Lord that makes the Christian strong. Okay? We are strengthened by our Lord. We are acted upon by the Lord. He makes us strong. But verse 11, he says something else. He says, put on the whole armor of God. And the form that's used here in the original text is in the middle voice. That means the individual does something. And what do we do? We put on the whole armor of God. We do that. We are made strong by the Lord, but we put on the whole armor of God. Now, that leads to a question, and it's raised frequently. If we are, first of all, strengthened by our Lord, why do we need to put on the whole armor of God? It's not an unreasonable question. I mean, isn't the strength of the Lord sufficient? So why do we need the whole armor of God? And because of the way that seems, there are those who say that I am being strengthened by the Lord, therefore I don't need to go on. They believe that the power of the Lord is sufficient. But I don't believe this is an either-or proposition. I believe it is a both-and thing. And failure to do either one, failure to be made strong by the Lord or failure to put on the armor of the Lord will lead to failure. And then there's another reason why I think the Apostle Paul's answer is in two parts. There's a positive and a negative. In talking about being made strong in the Lord, we are dealing with being made strong by him to to have everything ready that we're going to need to do in this spiritual warfare. That's positive. The Lord's going to make us strong. But in the matter of the armor, to me at least, it seems just a little bit more negative. We are waiting preparing for an attack that will come against us. 
When Satan attacks, we are never told, go on the offensive. We are told to stand firm and resist. We need to keep in mind as we come to verses 13 and following that Paul was familiar with the Roman soldier and familiar with the armor, familiar with the dress of the Roman soldier. He would look at their dress, their weapons, and then out of that he has formulated for us, led by the Spirit of God, what we have in verses 13 and following, what we need uh, by way of spiritual armor. And there are six pieces here. I'll try to move through them fairly quickly, but there are six pieces of armor. We are to be made strong by the Lord. We are to put on the armor. And what is the armor? First of all, it's the belt of truth. The Roman soldier always wore a tunic, an outer garment that served as his primary piece of clothing. And usually it was made of one large piece of cloth. It had a hole for the head cut in it and a hole for the arms cut in it. And generally speaking, it was loosely draped over the Roman soldier. But since the greatest part of his battle was hand-to-hand, a loose tunic would be a hindrance and even a danger to him. And so before the battle, he carefully cinched up the tunic and tucked it under um, a heavy leather belt that girded his loins. Interestingly enough, even the ordinary citizen of the Near East had a similar problem. When he was in a hurry, uh, when he had heavy work to do, he usually did the same thing as a soldier did. He tucked up his tunic. He tucked up the garment under his belt. Now, that which girded about is girded about the believer and demonstrates his readiness for battle is truth. Truth. And here, truth refers to two specifics. One is the content of truth, objective truth. The child of God needs to be aware of and holding on to and learning more of objective truth, which comes from the word of God. That prepares him for this battle. Without that, the New Testament says that a believer is carried about by every wind of doctrine. You see, all the stuff that comes along today, and it it seems like to me that every week there's a, a, a new thing that has come along for the church, something else that the church needs to do or whatever. The only test that we have of that is God's word. What does God's word say about that? You've heard me say from this pulpit. You ought to test what I say by God's word. If I cannot say to you that which is in the word of God, let me just tell you, don't believe it. But apply that truth to every other preacher and every other Bible teacher that you hear. If it doesn't come from the word of God, don't believe it. This is the source. This is our test. Uh, it's that by which we measure everything else. Objective truth. May I ask you, are you involved in learning objective truth? 
This involves study. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a worker that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's what Paul told Timothy. Are you studying the word of God? Let me ask you something. A couple of questions. Do you go to Sunday school regularly? If not, why not? I look around and I see the faces of our Sunday school teachers all over the congregation. They study. They come and they teach God's word. Not all of our classes do it, but I have an affinity for classes and teachers who teach the word of God. Who open the Bible and teach not a quarterly. It seems to me that quite often a quarterly, some of them are good, okay? I'm not saying everyone is bad. But sometimes that quarterly becomes a filter between you and God's word. And that's not what you want. You want the straight skinny. That is the word of God. You faithful in Sunday school? What about a Bible class? You got a Bible class that you're faithful to? I'm not talking about when you hit or miss. Well, I can't go this week. I got something else going. I got to mow the yard. So I can't go to Bible class. Are you going to a Bible class faithfully? In addition to your Sunday school, may I say to you, those of you who do go to a Bible class regularly, it is not supposed to be a substitute for your Sunday school class. It's not I go to Bible class, so I don't need to go to Sunday school class. Here's the question that probably you will like least. Do you study the Word of God on your own? Or does your Bible collect dust from one Sunday to the next? Old story, you've heard it. Man been a member of the church for a long time. Just quit coming. Preacher didn't know why. Nobody knew why. Preacher went to see him. And he said, uh, well, I've, uh, I've lost my Bible. Preacher's kind of a nosy sort of a fella. And he said, where'd you look for it? Did you look around your house for it? And being the nosy sort of fella that he was, preacher said, let me help you look. Preacher found his Bible. He said he lost it. Therefore, he couldn't come to church. May I say to you, friend, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some in the foyer and we'll give you one. That's one of the things our board deacons instituted maybe a year ago. On your left going out, if you do not have a Bible that is your own, if you have indeed lost your Bible, take one out of the back. We'd love to have you do that. That's why we put them there. Are you studying the Word of God on your own? Or you count on somebody else to do all that for you? Do you have a place in your house where you uh, sit to pray, where you look over the uh, uh, worship folder and the sick who are listed there and you pray for them? Do you, is that where you sit to study your Bible? Do you have a place like that? We're talking about objective truth here, and that's where it starts. A belt of truth. This also refers, secondly, objective truth, but it also refers to truthful living. You know, there's more than one passage in the New Testament which expresses this negatively. In this same book we read, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, every one of you. Paul in Colossians 3 is even plainer, if possible. He says, do not lie one to another. For whatever reason it's done, lying never finds approval in the Bible. Never. It shouldn't find approval in our lives. 
lying not to win a game, lying to gain favor with others, lying to get new business, lying to keep old business, and you go on. The Bible never sanctions lying. Lying not to one another. So with this matter of the belt of truth, it refers to objective truth, knowing the truth, and of being truthful in our living. That which girds the Christian soldier and makes him ready for spiritual warfare is truth on both levels. Second, the breastplate of righteousness, verse 14, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The Roman soldier would never go into battle without a breastplate. It was a tough, sleeveless piece of armor that covered his torso. Sometimes it was made of leather, and when it was made of leather, it often had uh, slivers of the hooves of animals or from um, a horn, slivers of that sewn to the leather, making the breastplate stronger. Other times, it was made of metal that had been hammered and molded to cover the body. And its purpose was to protect the vital organs. Part of our protection against Satan's attacks is the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness that should, if I understand the New Testament correctly, wrap around our whole being. Now, obviously, I guess I need to add this. Paul's not talking about self-righteousness. We don't walk around manifesting a self-righteousness. God forbid. That's not righteousness. It's, to me, I think one of the chiefest of sins, self-righteousness. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not even talk about, talking about imputed righteousness, that righteousness which God imputes to the child of God the moment he trusts Jesus as his personal Savior. He's not talking about those kinds of righteousnesses. The breastplate of righteousness that Paul refers to is practical, righteous living. Daily, moment by moment, practical, righteous living. You know, it is of interest to me, and I try to keep up with what a number of churches are doing, not just in our community, but across the nation. I fear that uh, the church is guilty of supplying Christian people with a paper armor, good advice, nice programs, nice techniques, methods. When what is needed is none of those things. What is needed is practical, righteous living, like truthful living. Practical, righteous living, and the whole armor of God. That's what's needed in the church today. To enter spiritual warfare without the breastplate of righteousness will bring defeat. And it will bring loss of joy and a loss of fruitfulness. Number three, the footwear. You know, I think it's interesting. We have footwear for every kind of possible event today. Do you know that? We've got shoes for dress. We've got shoes for work. We've got shoes for leisure. We've got shoes for the beach. 
Uh, we've got shoes for athletic events, golf shoes, tennis shoes, football shoes, baseball cleats, spikes, whatever. we got a shoe for it. Soldier shoes, I think, are more important than any of those. And particularly in Paul's day, the soldiers in those days would march through rough, hot roads, climb over rocks, trample over thorns, wade through stream beds, go over sharp rocks, and his feet needed protection. A soldier whose feet were cut, bloody, swollen, he would have a hard time even standing, much less carrying on a battle. A Christian's footwear is equally, if not more, important. Now what does he mean? In verse 15, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What does he mean, the gospel of peace? Well, preparation may be translated foundation. Okay? Maybe translated foundation. Paul's looking at the foundation of peace. A man at peace with God cannot quickly be gotten off his feet. A man who is at peace with God cannot quickly be swept off of his feet. Remember the psalmist? Like a tree planted by the water. The winds will come, but it it won't take the tree down. Same thought. In this passage, the gospel of peace refers to the good news that the child of God is at peace with God. Say, are you at peace with God? We are reconciled to God through faith in His Son. Stability comes from having our feet shod. Stability. Number four, the shield of faith in verse 16. In addition to all taking up the shield of faith, with which you shall be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. Now, one historian has written that this shield of which Paul is writing was about two feet wide, four feet tall. Cover and protect the entire body of the soldier. Normally, it was made of of a solid piece of wood. And again, sometimes either covered with leather or with slivers of the hoof or, uh, or the animal, of an animal, or the horn, hoof or horn of an animal, often on top of it. Our shield is faith. That is a basic trust in God. The substance of Christianity is believing that God exists. You know, there are people all over the world, you read about all they don't even believe that God exists. Watching a commentary on TV the other night, uh, something was mentioned about God to an individual. He says, that's a joke. There's no God. It doesn't exist. It's the kind of world we live in. That's not unusual. Substance of Christianity is believing that God exists, that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And of putting our trust in the crucified, risen, and coming again, Lord Jesus Christ. 
substance of Christianity is believing and obeying the scriptures. And it's living by faith. That's our shield. And then in New Testament times, the tips of arrows would often be wound, uh, would have material wound around them. And then that material on the tip of the arrow would be dipped in pitch. And before the arrow was shot, it would be lighted. And so you have the fiery darts, uh, fiery arrows, and the apostle speaks of the, these uh, flaming missiles in verse 16 of the evil one. The flaming missiles against which we need protection seem to me to be temptations. Temptations. Satan continually bombards God's children with temptation. Every conceivable temptation. Ones that you haven't even thought of yet. 1 John 5 says, This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith. Number five, the helmet of salvation, verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The Roman helmet was famous for its beauty. It was famous for its height. And the primary function of the helmet was, of course, to protect the head. And often there were cheek pieces to protect the face. I believe that the Apostle Paul is borrowing this metaphor from a passage back in the book of Isaiah, which refers to deliverance. The helmet of salvation is the deliverance that God gives to us in our daily walk. The helmet of salvation is the deliverance that God gives to us in our daily walk. You remember the hymn that we sing sometimes? When through the deep waters I call thee to go. The rivers of sorrows shall not overflow, for I will be with thee thy trials to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. The other, next verse was, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lead, my grace, all sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flames shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The helmet speaks of Deliverance. Sword of the Spirit is the last. Number six in this uh, verse 17. Now, the sword of the Spirit referred to here is not that massive broad sword that the Roman soldier had access to. Uh, this refers to a small sword used by the soldiers in hand-to-hand -hand combat. That's important because it lets us know the sword had to be skillfully used and with precision. And the Apostle Paul explains that our sword is the word of God. To be able to use the word of God. I quoted the verse from Timothy earlier. A workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. Do you know how to use the Bible? Or... I've encountered folks, I'm sure you have too, uh, they think they're using the Bible when it's time for them to have their, uh, they, they want to have a devotional time, but there's no systematic study to it. 
uh, when they come to study the Bible, they just let the Bible fall open. That's their verse for the day. May I say to you, that's not skillfully using the Word of God. Systematic study of God's Word. May I say to you, there is a great supernatural warfare that is raging throughout the world. It is between God and His angels and Satan and His forces. And because we as Christian people, we who've placed our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, because we belong to him, we are drawn into this battle. We are attacked by various schemes and the wiles of our adversary. And when that happens, we are called on to stand And we need to do these things that come to us from our text this morning. We need to do these things if we're going to do that standing that the apostle calls for. We must be strengthened by the Lord in the power of his might. And we must put on the armor of God. Are there chinks in your armor today? Six pieces of armor. We all should be endeavoring to get a hold of and to take unto ourselves the whole armor of God. And then in this text, Paul says, and having done all to stand. You know, it is one of the deepest of my soul. One of our deacons expressed it recently in my hearing, and say, enough is enough. And he was talking about the world in which we're living. It is high time for God's people, people who know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, to, say, to stand up and say, no, this is wrong. No, we are not going down that road. We will be in the minority. We are in the minority. We will continue to be in the minority. But we're on the right side. We're on the winning side. Listen, I read the book of Revelation. I know who wins. And all of this tummy rot, pardon that expression, about being politically correct. May God deliver His church from being politically correct. I find nothing in the Bible that is politically correct. Nothing. And so if we're going to take the Word of God and stand on the Word of God, we will not be politically correct. And, you know, here's nothing. We won't even care. We won't even care. I don't want to be politically correct. I want to be biblically correct. And that ought to be our hope. And once we get that far, we ought to stand, not slink back into a corner and say, well, I'm going to give up because I can't win. God help us. What does his church come to? What is, it, what, what is the direction our church is headed in? Are you ready to give up? I'm talking about biblical truth ingrained in the saints who live by it and who stand on it. I don't care. You vote for anybody you want to, okay? But let's get a hold of the Bible. Let's hang on to it for all that we're worth. And let's never one time be ashamed of being in any company. I don't care what's business, what's a neighborhood, or anywhere else. Let's never back up from the Word of God. And you can be polite. 
He said, I just can't go that way. I believe the Bible. I believe God's word says otherwise. You don't have to be mean-spirited. You don't have to be ugly. God delivers you from that because you won't get anywhere doing that. You'll never convert anybody. You'll never win anybody by being a Pharisee. Get a hold of the word and stand. Pray with me. Lord, the easy thing to do today is to give up. Say that we can't win this battle that we're in. It's an unseen foe. It's hand-to-hand. There are flaming arrows of temptation coming at us. But the Apostle Paul says, that's not so. Be strengthened in the Lord. Put on the whole armor of God. And having done all to stand. Oh God, make us that kind of people. Speak to our hearts. Help us to so love you that we can do nothing else other than to take your truth to a world that is lost and dying. Help us to remember that your arm is not shortened to bring people to Christ. The next subject that the apostle brings up in verse 18 is praying. Help us to pray, our Father, for people that are in our circle, in our business, in our neighborhood, or in our family that don't yet know Jesus as Savior and help us to speak the truth to them. We're going to walk out of here in just a minute or two and we are charged to go and make disciples. Help us, we pray, O God. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. It's number 477 in your hymnal. 477. The message this morning, dear friends, has not been a particularly evangelistic message. The message this morning has been by and large directed to the saints and needs in my life and in yours to do what is in the passage that we've worked on this morning. But I want to share this with you. The Bible says that we're sinners. I may not like that, and you may not like it either. But the Bible says that's true. For all have sinned. Not some, but all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Your life may be a whole lot better than somebody else's, but you still come short of the glory of God. And that's not all that message that Paul gives either. Next, he says, a couple of chapters over from where he said that, he says the wages of sin is death. Wages, that's something you work for. You're working for death until you come to faith in Christ. That's what the Bible says. The wages, that's something that you work for. The wages of sin, what we work for when we sin is death. But the Bible also says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the, in the intervening passages in Romans, Paul says that Christ loved us. He died for us. He gave himself for us. Believe on him. If you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, it is the most important decision that you will ever make. Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? And as a child of God, are you wrapping yourselves in the armor for this unseen battle? Olin, if you'll pray for us, please.
Will you bow your heads with me, please? Our Father, you're just so good to us. New members. People that know us and love us. People that we want to know and love better than we do now. Thank you, Father. Our loving God, it's my privilege to stand before this congregation of warriors this morning and to close this worship service in prayer. We came to worship the only true and living God. Father, we heard a somber message this morning, but we're to be encouraged. In a world that seems to be spiraling out of control, things are not falling apart, but they are falling into place. And we're grateful for that. And if we study your word, and we've been exhorted this morning to do just that, we know these things. This battle may be unseen, but there is evidence aplenty throughout our society of spiritual warfare. One need only open a newspaper or a magazine or listen to an evening news, and it's there. We started our service, early in our service, we were guaranteed a victory, a victory in Jesus. And I think it's important that we heard that before we heard this message. We talked about warfare this morning, warfare of the spirit-filled believers. And we, we heard about the warrior's power and the warrior's armor. We heard about the foe of the warrior. And we heard about the resources that are available to warriors. And as we take this stand against the devil and his schemes, Father, we know that where Satan rules, our God overrules. Close quarter combat. All of the things that we read about this morning were for that. We're to anticipate being face to face in this battle. And again, we were exhorted to study your word in a systematic and an organized manner, Father. I pray that each person here does just that. And I would echo Ross's words this morning. I would appeal to that one person or those people this morning that don't know you as Lord and Savior. First of all, I hope you were troubled by this message. And secondly, I hope that the Lord above would not give you any rest until that spot in your heart that's meant for him would be filled by his Holy Spirit. Father, I come this morning and I ask you to acknowledge all of those on our prayer list. You know the needs, whether it's healing, or whether it's consolation. I just ask, Father, that you would be with each and every one of them. We pray for our mission of the week and ask that you would give Bonnie all those things that she needs in order to work for you and for your glory. And now, Father, may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's my prayer for each of us today. And I lift this prayer in the name of Christ Jesus, that name above all of the names. Amen.